It sounds crazy, but children might be better than adults at building healthy relationships. You see, kids say it how it is, whereas adults overcomplicate things. On today's episode, we'll show you what kids can teach us about becoming more honest communicators, more empathetic leaders, and all-round better people. Plus, you'll learn the right and wrong way to talk to your customers and how to stop yourself getting stuck in the resulting addictive feedback loop. Let's dive in. Welcome to the season two finale of Subject Matter. Hello and welcome to Subject Matter. This is episode 16 of season two, our final episode of the season. I'm your host as always, Ben Bradbury, and for the next half an hour or so, we're going to be unpacking a new mental model that you can use to understand yourself and the world a little bit better. Today, we're learning from the wisdom of youth and what children can teach us about becoming stronger communicators and more empathetic leaders. And today's guest is well-placed to comment on that subject. Let's introduce them. Lex Deek is the founder of Kinderlist, an online store for children's gifts and experiences, sourcing eco-friendly and unusual products. It lists over 3,000 products curated from over 100 partner retailers, including Argos, The White Company, and Waterstones. Lex is also a keen community builder as the founder of Q Ventures, a private members club for investors providing access to early-stage venture opportunities. I had an absolute blast interviewing Lex, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Now, when I had my first call with Lex before this interview, something he said really stuck with me, which is that it's lovely to be in a space full of color and laughter, that is, working with children in Kinderlist. He said it's really refreshing to see things through the eyes of children. And that got me curious. So I asked him, how has making decisions with children in mind impacted your relationships with others? It's forced me to be a bit more honest with myself, if I'm being candid, you know, to value the simpler things, to perhaps speak more directly with people. Kids say it how it is, right? And and that's wonderful. And it's often quite comical. Um, Adults, because of social complexity and hierarchy and, and nuance and cultural difference and all of the experiences that we carry around with us as we get older impact on how we communicate. And there's always a, you know, there's always something in the subtext or there's always something unsaid or there's always politics or there's always, you know, a strategy for, for dealing with something in a certain way. And I feel myself unshackling from all of that being in, in this space and just saying it how it is, you know, if I've taken too long to get back to someone, then it's not, you know, we've been absolutely slammed this week with blah, 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 as you're off, as we're all used to receiving. It's just, I'm sorry, it shouldn't have taken me this long to get back to you. And on the flip side, if I'm waiting for someone to get back to me, I'm not particularly, um, I'm not as accommodating or as sympathetic as I was. You know, I just will say, well, it's not, it's not good enough. I need better communication from you and that's how it's going to be moving forward. So almost almost stepping into a kind of parental position, I guess, or like applying parental strategy to to managing a business and managing a team. And and so far I'm enjoying it because you don't carry any of this politics around any of this sort of subtext. You just say it how it is and it's wonderfully refreshing. 
I was speaking to a friend of mine earlier this week, and he told me a story about from his time in Canada when he was learning to be a snowboard instructor and overcoming his mental block of backflips. And he said at this trampoline park, an eight-year-old kid came up to him and said, I can help you do a backflip. I'll help you overcome this mental block. And flabbergasted, my friend just watched this eight-year-old break it down into steps. He said, first of all, you start on your knees and then you flip over your knees so that you can land on your shoulder and overcome your fear of breaking your neck. And by the end of the session, my friend had overcome this mental block of backflips. Now, why does this subject matter? Well, first of all, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking that kid is going places. But actually, there's probably more to it than that. The fact is that children see things how they actually are. They don't need to overcomplicate them with politics and with strategy. What if the child just simply saw what my friend needed to do? Now, we lose that simplicity as we get older and we add politics and strategy to how we communicate and we communicate how we think others want to perceive us and not how we actually should. And historically, there have been social benefits to this, of course. It's safer for tribes favoring those who are more like us rather than admitting someone who's alien. So it helps us to have that kind of layer of imitation. But we can certainly learn from children here and how we simplify getting our messaging across. Remember Lex's language. It's allowed him to unshackle and see things for how they actually are and say things how it is. So there's no more of this politicking around. He simply says, I'm sorry, that wasn't good enough and I will do better next time. So if we choose to adopt this simpler form of communication, then how does this come full circle? How can this impact on children as well? If you just can get over the the stigma of asking for what you actually want, being more candid and saying, well, you know, our son is really into building blocks at the moment and we're short on building blocks because he can only build a tower so high. We would love it if he had more building blocks. And guess what? You, know, you make it a lot easier for, the, for anyone that may be kind enough to want to give to buy the right thing. And it sounds like a small thing, but then you start to have an impact upon the values of the child and the interests of the child, you know, you start to then feed the, the areas where they are interested already rather than give them this huge smorgasbord of choice and, and encourage this flitting behavior from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. They don't value things in the same way as, as they did when, when these things were more scarce. Life is selection. And the earlier that children can learn to nurture what they care about rather than everything, the better they'll be in the long run. In the case of Kinderlist, it makes it easy for parents to ask for what their kids want, and therefore their kids can develop a specific set of interests. But let's be real here. Life is selection for me and you too. Options might seem great in theory, but in reality can be quite paralyzing. And so children can teach us to be clearer about what we want. So next time you're asking for something, do the heavy lift for your audience by being really specific in your asks. How exactly can someone engage from you and why does it actually matter? If you're vague, you're going to get a vague response, but a specific query generates a specific answer. When you've been a really good dad, you know you have and you, you, your kid will be more responsive and you'll just know it. You'll go to bed or you'll, you'll have that glass of wine in the evening and you'll think you deserve it. And it's a similar, very similar sort of emotion and feeling to, to building a team and incentivizing and, and doing all the things you need to do with the team. 
So I asked Lex what kids can teach us about leading teams and how it's impacted his leadership style personally. I think I've probably developed a little bit more empathy and I've become a slightly softer manager in terms of, you know, understanding the emotional needs of people a little bit more and and valuing those a little bit more. Now, this is a really powerful thought that we can learn from kids to understand our emotional needs better and our team's emotional needs better as well. Kids wear their hearts on their sleeve. If they are upset, then they're going to cry. But adults are much better at bottling our emotions up. And so for Lex, working with kids allowed him to develop this sense of empathy and understand when people need emotional support and not just solutions. I believe this kind of empathetic communication is a competitive advantage for leaders today. And so perhaps we can learn from kids in simply being a little bit more honest in how we communicate. Now, just as it is for adults, the way that kids are connecting is changing too in this new virtual world that we're stepping into. And I asked Lex how he thinks that experiences are going to be changed given what we are going through in 2020. We're actually doing a campaign uh, next week, which is to help the somewhere near 600,000 kids who are going to miss their birthday parties because of the lockdown. And so we're promoting the idea of having virtual birthday parties, yeah, web, web conferencing software set up, parents informed in advance and you know, with a bit of time to prepare for what the activities will be. And it could be kind of virtual pass the parcel or bingo or a quiz. So nothing too onerous. And then kind of unboxing of presents and things like that. Let's break down these virtual birthday parties that nearly 600,000 kids across the UK could be having then. So at first glance, they might seem like a second-rate substitute for the real thing, where they're stimulating physical connection as best they can. But Lex actually thinks slightly differently. For young families, time is, is basically the most precious commodity. And so, so if I could save an hour driving to a party, an hour driving back and then you know a bit of time either side if we're talking about kind of school friends and we can just hook in for an hour to do a party and a celebration and stuff and they're going to see each other at school anyway um that there's some efficiency to be gained there with then we can spend more time as a family or we can do other things and so i think that there'll just be a, a broad kind of awareness that there are alternatives it's about reduction in in stress you know going to particularly a toy shop you know, toy shops are magical places for children, less so for adults, particularly at busy times. We can reduce the number of visits to, to bricks and mortar stores and encourage parents just to think about it a little bit in a slightly different way. So this highlights that there's new value to be gained in forming online connections. For young families, it saves them time. And time is the most precious resource for them, as Lex has noted, but it also reduces their stress level as well from buying presents. Now, the same principle applies to you. Right now, we might be losing out on physical interaction and through social distancing as we transition into the new normal, it certainly might be capped for a few months. But that means that relationships are moving from a focus on depth to a focus on breadth. And because of that, we can reach a wider sample size of people. And so for me, because everyone is cooped up, I'm able to speak to friends in Bali, New York, Amsterdam, Toronto, London, regularly. And I would never normally have access to all my friends like this. So I'm making the most. I'm moving from depth in my local network here in the UK to breadth across my virtual network. 
And we can do the same thing. By focusing on breadth over depth, we're not losing out on something, but we're discovering new value instead. And yes, we can never truly replace physical interaction, but there is certainly a lot of advantages to be gained moving into this new normal, and we'd be foolish not to look at them. Now, a common theme from my conversation with Lex was learning from people. Now, we've talked about learning from tiny people, from children. Now, let's talk about learning from big people and specifically from your customers. So I asked Lex what he's learned from speaking to customers with one of his earliest ventures, Family Fridge, which was an online social network for modern families. There's a real art to market research and to to user feedback. I think as part of my management degree, I studied a brief module in research methods, which at the time for me was the most boring thing on the on, imaginable. I wish I had paid more attention because the way that, that you collect the feedback, the structure, the the research methods that you use are are key. With Family Fridge, I was I was giving people loaded questions. I was structuring the surveys in a way that gave me the answers that I wanted to hear rather than those that I needed to hear. Now, this is a cardinal sin of talking to customers, but also trying to form connection with other people. And these are heavily loaded questions. For Lex, he said he was asking questions to get the answers that he wanted to hear, not the answers that he needed to hear. And the problem with leading questions is that they plant the seed of an answer in your mind by asking the question. So let me give you an example. If someone asks you to evaluate a fellow team member and you say, do you think this person did a bad job? You've just planted the seed that the person has done a bad job. They could be a stellar employee for all you know, but now that person is thinking about the bad job they might have done. So how can we overcome this biased form of questioning then? Well, Lex uses a slightly different approach in asking questions of his customers today. You talk to people In fact, you shouldn't talk to them. You'll have either an agency or one of the team talk to them and present questions in a very unbiased way with an agenda of answering certain questions. And if you follow like a sprint methodology, then they're wanting to identify what questions you need to ask and what problems you need to solve and what, you know, what the big issues are, but not being too prescriptive and taking a, in a very measured and a, very professional approach to getting that feedback, both quantitative and qualitative. And it's you know, meant blending those two things together, which is also quite a challenge, which has taken me quite a few years to really understand how to do, you know, and, and how to weight some of those things. So if, if you have, again, it will play into your own bias, but if you had one of your survey respondents in a face-to-face tell you that they loved the color pink and actually you, you quite like the color pink too, then suddenly... Everything has to be pink. Yeah, it's come back from the from the market research. They love pink. We we should be doing pink. You know, then you had a survey that you put out on, a, say, a Google survey or whatever to a thousand people, and five hundred people actually like blue and only two hundred like pink. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest, and you have to be somewhat detached. It becomes easier in a, actually in a bigger business to be detached from it and less emotionally invested, but. Hiring good people to do that for you is key if you can't do it yourself. So what can we learn from Lex then? Well, let's swap our leading questions for open questions. So let's come back to our earlier example. The leading question, do you think this person did a bad job? That's what Lex calls prescriptive, expecting a certain outcome. But let's now swap that for an open question. How well do you think this person did? 
the sky is the limit. You could pick bad, you could pick great, you could pick anything you want. But the key is, I have allowed you to open up with the response you want to give. Now, the second big takeaway is to be honest and detached from our outcomes. And this means removing any kind of emotional strife that you might get from not getting the feedback that you're looking for. Now, getting bad feedback can hurt. But remember that getting it wrong for your customers doesn't reflect badly on you or on your team. It just means that the customers haven't found what they want yet. Now, just like you and just like me, customers are selfish. We want what we want. And if you haven't delivered that yet, then they're going to say so in their feedback. But don't take that personally. They're simply telling you that their needs haven't been met yet. So to recap, ask open questions and keep yourself open to all kinds of feedback. Whether it's great or terrible, feedback is always a gift. When you're collecting data from customers, Lex believes at an early stage, getting as much as possible as you can is great. But when do metrics go too far? I often have this somewhat negative feeling of of being addicted to some of these screens. Um, I know that a lot of founders would feel the same. And it's important to, there are often times, uh, I'm sure for founders where they're looking at this screen, they should be doing something else. It's not going to make, you know, it's not going to happen by itself. You can refresh the page a hundred times in a day. It's not the same as picking up the phone and making that sales call or reaching out to that potential distribution partner or pushing go on a, on a PR campaign that you've been working on. It's very addictive. The, the dopamine that you get from watching your whatever counter or, or your metrics tick up in a certain way and you just sit there and you kind of maniacally just refresh the page just to see if there's more and there is and so it feeds it again. It's a very addictive loop. Feedback is a gift, but we have to recognize when there's too much of a good thing. Now, I'll be honest, I've been guilty of this in the past. Sometimes I've refreshed the subject matter downloads tracker a little bit too regularly. But the truth is those downloads might tell me something but they're often taking away from actually making the action of recording a new episode or reaching out to a new potential guest, things that will actually grow the podcast. The problem when metrics go too far is that we validate our efforts from the numbers that we're getting. And we get too attached to these dopamine-fueled loops, watching the metrics come in as opposed to actually moving the needle forward. Now, this comes back to what we can control and what we can't. External metrics will always be that white rabbit that we're chasing. And yes, they can tell us a lot about their business, but they're ultimately outside of our control. If you compare this to internal metrics, like how many episodes I'm going to record or how many people I'm going to reach out to, that is always in my control and that is worth measuring. And for more on the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivators, check out episode five of season one, Ambition versus Happiness. So if you've struggled with this in the past, ask yourself two questions. Do I want to feel good from the numbers that I'm creating, like traffic, users, and downloads, but that are ultimately out of my control? Or do I want to draw my energy from numbers that I control, like the number of sales calls I make or the number of blogs that I post? Creating a locus of internal control will let you break free of the addictive dopamine-fueled loops. When things are going well, it's easier than ever to get sucked into the metrics because we're getting more feedback than ever. So what does Lex do? What systems does he put in place in order to keep himself focused? When you have that initial idea, when it's conceived, when the spark ignites, 
it's almost like being in a movie. You sort of picture this business idea. You can see the branding. You know what, what people you need in place. You know how much it's roughly going to cost. You know who the competitors are. You can see what the messaging would be. You've got a loose idea how you might be able to make it. and what, All of that comes within about five seconds. That is pure, undistilled kind of innovation and spark. And that, that is really precious. It's really important to go back regularly and remind yourself of what the initial problem you were trying to solve is. It's so common that you will get drawn into pockets of opportunity or sidelines or mild pivots because of a conversation that you had with somebody or an introduction that was made or something that you read and then you panicked because things weren't moving quickly enough. So suddenly you've pivoted into doing something else on the side and you then start to dedicate resource. And then before you know where you are, you forgot what you were doing originally. And it's often what you thought of originally that is probably the best idea. That's your subconscious whirring away, piecing things together, you know, beautiful Venn diagram of, of your experiences and it's the, the overlap where the opportunity and, and the innovation lies. So, you know, the point is just to really hold on to that and, and to revisit that on a regular basis because you were probably right in the first instance. And at least if you're not, then you, you know you can be accountable to that vision rather than get lost and with, with something that's become something else that you never really wanted it to become and you're not quite sure where you're going as a result, that can kill you. We plan for failure, but we don't often plan for success. And what happens when your initial spark of vision becomes reality? What then? Well, the success that you have is going to magnetize people towards you and you're probably going to get more feedback than you had ever hoped for. But you've got to be careful because that feedback could lead you astray if you're not wary. So to anchor yourself, ask yourself, what is the original problem that I set out to solve? Odds are that it's probably changed a lot less than you think. In other words, stay accountable to your original vision, because this creates a clear mental model that we can use to make decisions that are aligned and accountable to that original spark. So how does Lex create a habit around staying accountable to that vision? I keep various to-do lists today, next day to-do list, and then longer term to-do lists. And, you know, in a quiet moment, you'll have a flick through the longer to-do lists, which is a bit of a think pad of ideas as well. And you'll realize that it's drifting. And then that's the signal to just check yourself. And if you need to you know, go back and read a mission statement that you wrote initially or the first business plan that you did or whatever it was, and just, you know, sit there, take a moment and think, no, We've set out to do X, Y, and Z, and we just need to keep going with that. Einstein once said that everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. And likewise, that problem that you set out to solve might not need reinventing. You don't need to bring anything new, you just might need reminding. Now, likewise, when we're trying to create connection, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. If you know your customer's pain point, then communicate that as succinctly and smartly as you can to them. You see, when you can articulate your customer's pain point better than they can, you win. So dial into that problem and seek to understand it as best you can. When your customer feels understood, that's when they'll gravitate towards you. And that is when connection happens. And for our final segment today, we're looking at an unlikely source that's created connection too. And that's COVID-19. 
Lex pointed out the silver lining in this crisis that's bringing us all together. The strength of community and just the feeling of unity in this last month has been incredibly buoying. I've really drawn a lot of positivity and energy and enjoyment from feeling that for once, finally, we all seem united and globally. And it's, that's something that I think we should all really try to hold on to as much as possible. Now, this is a testament to the strength of community. For the first time in a while, every single human has a shared common bond. Remember what Lex said earlier, not to forget the unique original problem that you set out to solve. Well, if we don't forget this problem that has brought us together, we now have a common cause that transcends all borders and boundaries. Perhaps the best decision we can make in the near future is choosing not to lose this sense of common unity and not letting ourselves get caught up in the problems and anxieties that wreak havocs upon our minds. Let's not forget that for this chapter, we all stand united, and there's no reason that that feeling can't continue for a very long time. So let's review what we've learned today. First of all, is that we can relearn strong communication skills from children. Kids say it how it is, and that simplicity creates transparency. Don't underestimate what kids can teach us. Second, feedback is a gift, but realize what happens when metrics go too far. Keep a balance of healthy learning from customers by not getting attached to outcomes and asking open questions that lets them share how they're really feeling. And third and finally is that success will bring us more feedback than we could ever hope for but could also influence our direction if we're not careful. We can stay on course by coming back to our original problem. There's no need to reinvent the wheel here. Once you've remembered your problem, make things as simple as possible, but not simpler. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Subject Matter. If you've made it all the way to the end, I truly appreciate you tuning in. It really does mean a lot to me. If you liked what Lex had to say, you can follow him on Twitter, at Lex Deek, that's L-E-X-D-E-A-K, and on LinkedIn by the same name. You can also check out Kinderlist at kinderlist.com. If you're watching this video, please do go ahead and give it a like and leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you on what you're thinking, and it does help us with our early growth. And if you're listening, you can subscribe via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. That's the end of season two. We're taking a quick break to reassess how the season's gone and make season three even bigger, badder, and better than before. But thank you for listening to this season of Subject Matter. It's been a fantastic four months putting the show together for you. And I'm really looking forward to returning with season three very soon. So thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next season for season three of Subject Matter.